Bettina Brown, and welcome to In the Rising Podcast. This is the platform I've chosen to talk about living a life that is in alignment with your hopes, your dreams, and your goals. And sometimes those hopes, dreams, and goals are 180 degrees from where you are at a certain point in your life. And my guest today, Samantha Durbin, talks about that in her new book, Raver Girl. And I'm really, really anticipating that you're going to be eager to hear her story. Welcome, Samantha Durbin, to In the Rising podcast, author of Raver Girl, which I finished last night, I think, at one. Yay! <laughs> so, yes. Excited. Um, Thank you. Lots of, it's all about growing up in the 90s, which I share with you, and I loved all the references to things I used to wear, bands I listened to, all of that, so... What what inspired you to write this memoir really based off this decade, early decade? Um, so, yes, it was this decade. And for me, it was pretty much just two years of my life. Um, I would say these two years when I was like really hardcore into raving. Um, but what inspired me was uh, I had the light bulb moment um, in my early 30s. So uh, I started writing it eight years ago. And, um, I was just with some girlfriends and I was telling one of my crazy raver stories about when I had a bad acid trip, which is in the book. And, you know, these girlfriends were laughing and I was like, wow, I actually have lots of, you know, interesting stories. And I was like, Hmm, you know, I was a writer at the time. I'm still a writer. I was a a lifestyle writer for mostly online media and, and brands And I went online and was like, how many other, you know, female, you know, ravers or books are there? And there were like none. Um, All the stories I could find, all the books I could find were about the music or the drug part of it. And they were all written by men. And so I said, hmm, you know, I feel like I've got this story that like needs to come out and so I just was like let me try and see what happens and then here we are it just kind of like spilled out of me so it it did and it's you know I did not rave I don't understand that part but I could really relate to your teenage years like this was through your high school time and you also talked about certain pain points with your family and also your relationship with your parents can you go into that a little more Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was a real challenging time for my parents. Um, we, I grew up in Oakland, uh, and had a lovely childhood. Um, I had two older brothers, two parents, two cats, one dog, uh, we had a swimming pool. And so I had a lovely childhood. So, um, there was no abuse. Um, there was no neglect. It was actually a very just loving, safe, um, that was like the eighties. Uh, so I had a really fun eighties childhood and then I hit adolescence. Um, and I just, you know, the hormones and society and just everything. I just, you know, I started to feel really uncomfortable in my skin. And, um, so that's when things started to get really weird with my dad. And I think just having a, teenage daughter was just, you know, we didn't, couldn't connect on like any level, really. I think the only level we could connect was music. Um, he was really into music. He would have vinyl that he would play on the weekends. So that was really like the one area where we could connect. And 
And actually, um, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan uh, when I was kind of young, when I was like 10. And um, there's a chapter in the book uh, where I really wanted to go to this Guns N' Roses concert in Oakland. And I was way too young to go by myself. So my dad was like, "Okay, well, you can go and we're going too." Cause he actually, and he actually also likes the music. And so, you know, that's, you hear about that a lot. And that was pretty cool that my parents, you know, took me and my, um, my brother came and it was like one of the best nights of my life. Um, so yeah, when I was started raving, um, I knew they would not approve. Um, I'd had already, I already had an older boyfriend and had gotten caught sneaking out and lying. And, you know, I was grounded like half of my sophomore year of high school, just doing regular high school stuff. So when I discovered raves and I discovered them with that boyfriend who was a senior when I was a sophomore. So it's like every parent's nightmare, right? The older boyfriend, he was like a total Fox. Um, and they're like, Oh no. And yeah, so I really, um, had to hide my, new lifestyle for my parents. Then, uh, my dad, my parents also though, you know, they came from kind of more authoritarian parents. Um, my mom grew up in Ohio. She moved to California, um, in her twenties. Uh, my dad actually grew up in the Bay area and they both, when they met and got married, they decided we don't want to be authoritarian like our parents. You know, we want to kind of find our own parenting style. We want to give our parents the freedom to explore their interests and, um, you know, expose them to lots of different things. And we're not going to try to rule over them. And um, my dad was a tech entrepreneur. So he was very busy. He traveled a lot for work. Um, so he was out of town a lot during the week, which, um, you know, you can get away <laughs> with more when one of your parents is out of town a lot. Um, and he had long work days too. And, uh, my mom was a mom because, uh, it was the three of us. And so she was a mom. Um, and, uh, so the mom was like peacemaker because me and my dad were really, I think that's where our similar traits came out and really like we were really up against each other. So they did catch me on my second rave, uh, which is in the book, um, which was this like really crazy night. And it was in Santa Cruz and I just got my driver's license and it was like a storm and I was driving through the storm to get there. And it was like too many girls and there was acid involved. And um, one of the girls freaked out. And so all the parents like found out we weren't where we said we were, were, and it turned into this really dramatic night, um, where I was also on acid, like trying to not to be, and it was, you know, rainy and cold and we had to find pay phones to call the parents because this was before smartphones and so we had to leave the rave and find a pay phone because all of our pagers were blowing up, um, and me and my dad ended up having a really big fight after that. And um, I, that's when I realized like, okay, they're not going to accept this lifestyle. So I'm going to have to pretend, you know, I'm going to have to sneak around. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I snuck around and, you know, they must have known something was going on because I started to dress a different way. I started to listen to different music and, you know, I mean, parents know um, mm-hmm. when things are going on. Um, we joke about it now. And, um, but they also had, I had two older brothers and neither of them were perfect. So they'd already, you know, been through, had some parenting practice, but they never had a girl and they never had one who was so spirited, I would say. So it was a, it was a real struggle. Um, and they, you know, at one point they suggested therapy for me because, you know, they could just tell I was, you know, we were having issues we were having communication issues. I was obviously having some issues. So my dad was kind of like, well, if you're not going to talk to us, like, I want you to talk to a therapist. And I was like, oh, hmm, okay. And I, I was not that opposed to it. And it actually ended up being really good for me. Um, I'm still very pro therapy. Um, and now it's more available than it was in the nineties. It was definitely a privilege, um, you know, uh, a privileged thing in, in the nineties that you could afford it. So it just really helped me kind of work through those emotions and, and also just have an adult who I could talk to, who knew what they were talking about and could help identify those feelings that I was like, I don't know what's going on. So that was a big turning point. And, um, and that therapist was in Oakland and I still have that therapist, uh, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. I kind of called her up when I started writing the book and was like, so can we start seeing each other again? Cause I'm writing this story and you really helped me at that time. Yeah. And now she's still my therapist. So yeah. So they, you know, they, my parents navigated it really well, I would say. And then they also, you know, they didn't lock me up. Like, yes, I would be grounded. Um, and I, you know, had to kind of just sulk away in my house. Um, but then I got back to it and got back to raving and, um, but they were really kind of, they wanted to give us freedom. Like they wanted to trust their kids. They wanted us to feel like we could, they didn't want to oppress us. Um, but then they wanted to make sure we were safe. So I think that's the real like balancing acts that parents have to do, um, to not be like a helicopter parent. Right. But to also just be present and be available. So, um, that is what I, how I would explain probably how it went down with my parents. And then And then their other criteria um, for not interjecting too much was that I kept my grades a B average. So the fact that I was able to keep my grades a B average um, until this certain point, (laughs) the grades started falling um, at a certain point when, you know, the drugs were getting harder. and, And at one point I wanted to drop out of high school. Uh, that's when they were like, oh, God, red alert, you know, what are we going to do now? Um, and it's really interesting how they t- tackled that crisis because um, they were like, you don't want to be a high school dropout. <laughs> we don't we don't want you to be a high school dropout. My parents didn't graduate from college. 
Um, so they really wanted me and my brothers to, to go to college. They didn't have the opportunity. Um, they had done safe savings and everything. So we could all go to college. So when I said, I don't want to go back to school, they were like, no. <laughs> so it was just like one kind of like, you know, drama after another with them, but, you know, we got through it. Um, but they also disrespected, you know, my needs uh, as I was kind of figuring out what I needed. And like mm-hmm. I said, therapy, I think helped with that. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the exploration I was going through with raves, um, helped me also discover a lot about myself. Yeah. And finally, I know you had a little list in there, like you had done 104 raves and you went through the list of drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, wow, she is now a writer. She is a, this, she's How did you, and you even said in the book that you made a decision that this was not the door of forever for you. What do you feel um, really gave you that inspiration or motivation to really not be still strung out on drugs today? Because you did a lot of them. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it reached the book reaches like a climax where I'm in a really scary, um, situation. I'm in like a near fatal car accident. Then I was the driver. Um, and so that was really the catalyst for me to be like, Whoa, like what, what am I doing? So that was the catalyst, um, that really forced me to realize like I'm going in the wrong direction. Like, I don't know where I'm going. I need to like take a step back, reevaluate. I was doing crystal meth at the time, like every weekend. So I knew that was part of the problem. I stopped doing crystal meth. I really stopped um, a lot of the hard drugs after that. Um, I by then had, you know, gone through the, the rainbow of drugs and um, could really identify which ones were not working for me. And, um, but when I had that near death experience, like it was my family that, you know, came to me and made me realize like, I have so much to live for, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I have this support system. Um, I have my future. Like I want to live in New York at one point, uh, you know, I wanted to work in fashion, like it kind of all came flashing to me, like all my dreams. And, um, I realized like, I'm not going to find those if I keep going this path. So no, I didn't, I didn't end up in rehab or anything like that. I was, it was situational that made me realize I'm going in the wrong direction. Let me kind of take a step back, reevaluate and, yeah, I kind of, you know, cleaned up. And I think because I'd had the the family support again, or it doesn't have to be family, just some kind of support, whatever your community is, because Rave was also my community. I had, you know, really strong friendships through Rave that I still have. Um, so it doesn't have to be family, but just realizing there's more than just you, you know, you are just a small, you know, piece of this world. And it really made me realize that, um, cause I really stepped outside of my life and saw the big picture. Yeah. And that's what I love about your book is that you talk about this experience for you, but also the life change and you are the example of what 
taking that moment and thinking and realizing and family support can do for someone down the road. What an incredible story from from what she was going through in her high school years to now. And for so many, that is not the case, that they continue to slide down into drugs. But she talks about support and emotional support and how her parents never, never gave up for her and never gave up on her. And so um, if you find this podcast uh, beneficial or you feel that this might be something that someone you know is going through and this story and her story would really help her, then go ahead and share that. And also leave it a five-star review. It does so much to put this podcast in the hands and the ears of those that need it most. And until next time, let's keep building one another up.